You're here at Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. My name is Dennis Mundy, our co-host, my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Vader. Our guest today, Dr. Larry Dossi. He is the former chief of staff of Medical City Dallas Hospital. He is the author of 12 books dealing with consciousness, spirituality, and healing. His latest book, One Mind, How Our Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. Uh, Dr. Dossi, thank you so very much for taking the time uh, to come and speak with us today. Well, thank, uh, thank you, Dennis. It's really a pleasure to be with you two guys. Uh, Larry, um, you haven't had exactly a conventional uh, MD-like career, um, and there was a transformation in the direction you took uh, as a doctor fairly early on. Maybe you can uh, fill our listeners in for how you came to do the the uh, interesting and unconventional work you've you've done. What was the sort of turning point? Well, it a- actually happened pretty early on for me. I uh, I experienced a really a significant medical problem early in my uh, career. Uh, it actually began in uh, in high school when uh, I began to be afflicted with migraine headache which was really much more than headache. It uh, was associated with incapacitation, and the worst thing was partial blindness. And uh, these episodes almost derailed my medical career before it even got uh, started. Long story short, nothing worked for me uh, in terms of of conventional treatment. Uh, uh, And uh, I actually tried to drop out of medical school. This was so severe. I thought it would be... uh, uh, only a matter of time until I would be in a delicate medical situation and uh, like uh, a surgical procedure or something like that and have an attack of partial blindness actually might hurt or even kill somebody. This uh, really got worse as I cycled through uh, my postgraduate training and went into practice of internal medicine. And in the uh, early 70s, I discovered a technique called biofeedback, which burst upon the national scene at the time and was reported to be very effective in eliminating migraine. I chased all over the country in desperation learning how to do this, using imagery and visualization and profound states of relaxation. And uh, it was almost like a miracle happened. Uh, Within about six training sessions of biofeedback, the problem virtually disappeared. You know, this got my attention. I was really hooked on using consciousness uh, and psychological methods to intervene in serious illness based on my personal experience. So after that that episode, I was really hooked on looking at uh, psychological and spiritual interventions and, and serious illness. So that was my initial entree into looking at consciousness and how it affects the body. Larry, your work is fascinating to me because uh, I'm very interested in this idea of there's one mind, but we're part of a collective consciousness or or a a collective mind. I first remember reading about that in uh, my freshman year of college. I was taking a course in psychology of personality, and uh, Young, Carl Young, talked about it. And then since then, and it was very abstract to me at the time. Uh, then I started meditation, and I was actually over the years involved in a number of, uh, I guess, experiments where people collectively meditated to affect things in other places. And uh, 
you know, empirically, I don't know that I've seen the evidence to absolutely uh, support this, but intuitively, I've always felt that this is correct. Uh, what what led you to this research? Obviously, you're, you're one of the world's experts on it, and and have your thoughts and feelings about this uh, collective mind, this greater consciousness, have they evolved and changed over the years? Well, I uh, was hooked on Jung, too. I uh, He was one of my first uh, teachers uh, uh, in terms of this basic idea. You know, he called it the collective unconscious as well as the collective conscious. But Jung was uh, really only uh, one of a great many people who captured my attention. William James, the so-called father of American psychology, stood up for this idea also, uh, not quite as famously as Jung, but certainly he uh, has to be listed as one of the godfathers, so to speak, of this mm-hmm. general idea. Uh, actually, I... Uh, have had many experiences in my life where I felt connected with a greater consciousness. Uh, but I must say that the thing that really pushed me professionally in this direction, aside from the sorts of experiences I've just mentioned to you with biofeedback, have to do with actual experiments where people seem able to convey information and receive information at a distance between uh, themselves and another person, usually someone with whom they are emotionally uh, connected in a deep, uh, uh, loving, compassionate way. And there are so many of these experiments now that I think it is just virtually impossible to give an account of the results without coming up with some unitary uh, view of consciousness. I don't think any other view of consciousness makes any sense. So I think we, we... face Dennis with a really uh, interesting challenge these days. We have the the option of hanging on to this conventional idea that we're just individuals with consciousnesses locked inside our brains, or we can go in the other direction of saying, look, we're going to take these experiments seriously and come up with some sort of picture that accommodates them. And if we're willing to do that, I think we're going to be led in the direction of a common unitary consciousness, which is what I call non-local, and that's just a fancy word for infinite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mm. think that the, the, the key elements here are uh, the experiments which show that our consciousness is infinite in space and time. Uh, I think there's no way uh, empirically of getting around that, and I think that that's where science is headed. Larry, um, most of our listeners, like Dennis and, and me um, alike, um, will intuitively uh, resonate with the notion of, of one mind or an infinite right. consciousness of which our individual consciousness is the, you know, the, the uh, proverbial wave on the ocean. Um, we've learned that from the spiritual traditions or the mystical traditions, um, and we've had an intuitive sense of it in our own experience. Um, or maybe uh, uh, certain events have happened to us that were very convincing. You're known for um, attempting, along with certain colleagues of yours, to um, ground those insights that people in the West might think of as speculative uh, in empirical evidence. Right. Um, 
can you, and you just alluded to that, can you give us some specifics of, you know, the sort of most convincing experimental data that, in your, that you're aware of? Well, as a physician, I uh, am drawn to experiments having to do with healing uh, at a distance. And uh, the basic experimental setup uh, in the laboratory is that you have an individual who tries to use his or her intentions to make a change biologically in something uh, uh, at a distance. Uh, this could be another human being who is uh, needy. It could be uh, a group of cells whose biology you're trying to influence. It could be something as impersonal as a chemical reaction in the test tube. It could be an animal model uh, uh, such as mice with cancer that you're trying to uh, heal, uh, just to uh, 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 speak, just to speak generally about these results, uh, there are hundreds of these studies now that show that we can make changes at a distance in biological systems with our thoughts. Usually, this uh, is uh, associated with the feeling of compassion and love and empathy for the distant biological uh, situation, whether it's another human or an animal and so on. I'll just give you one example to make this real to people. Uh, there are several studies now that have been done uh, by Dr. William Bingston, who is a sociologist working uh, in New York, looking at the ability of people to bring about healing in mice uh, in whom they have transplanted cancer cells. The cancer that gets uh, implanted in these mice is breast cancer in people, adenocarcinoma of the breast. If you don't do anything to these mice after implanting this cancer, the cancer is 100% lethal. None of them survive. If you do what uh, Bingston and his uh, student volunteers uh, do in terms of extending healing thoughts and intentions and so on, then the cure rate approaches 90 percent. Uh, this is a spectacular result. Uh, wow. It's not a one-off. This has been replicated now in uh, five uh, academic centers in the United States. So this is an example of what I'm talking about. I mean, these are not trivial results. Uh, they're statistically robust. They're repeatable. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, I think, meet the criteria for uh, excellent science. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give you an example, but there are many, many other models that we could, uh, you know, put on the table, including your response of whole human beings to these sorts of healing intentions. I think people ought to be aware of this because it obviously has relevance to human health. And uh, uh, although it is threatening, I must say, to people who bump into this sort of thing for right. the first time. Right. Larry, if I could ask you, uh, uh, so what you're saying and, and what I believe is that uh, through our intentions, prayer, whatever, we can affect uh, other people because we're part of a, a larger, greater consciousness, a collective consciousness, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it. Are some people more skilled or more influential in how they can affect other people? I would think so. Uh, and, and what would that be based on? The strength of their consciousness? I mean, um, or, or would all people affect all other people in the same way? You know, that's a, that's a terrific uh, question. And I 
uh, up front would just agree with you that people are all over the ballpark in terms of their facility uh, in doing these things. I, I look at it as a, a kind of gift, uh, just as athletic ability or mathematical ability uh, ranges far and wide and people. Uh, some people just come into life, you know, as natural athletes and I think natural healers. I think uh, a lot of people are just born uh, with this ability to understand and feel and sense their overall connectedness with other people. Some of us have to struggle with it and uh, grow into it or uh, learn to sense this, uh, uh, this, this capacity to feel one with others. But, uh, you know, I think this is largely what uh, the great spiritual traditions have always mm-hmm. maintained and have been about how to develop this sense that, you know, our individual ego and self is not all there is uh, to us. And, Larry, uh, along those lines, um, just to carry the the athlete analogy a step further, while there may be gifted athletes, and I'll never be Michael Jordan, um, there are things I can do to be a better basketball player. Are there things people can do, and is there evidence for uh, for these uh, methods or whatever they are uh, to to better uh, uh, harness or uh, connect with that ability? I think uh, the answer is just an unequivocal yes. Just to uh, resort to that uh, example of healing uh, the uh, cancer and, and the mice, Dr. Bingston has developed a training program. Uh, and it, it, it's fascinating. He actually recruits uh, skeptical, cynical college students uh, from his classes, uh, and he teaches them the method. And these are kids who really go into this as really materialistically oriented non-believers. They don't believe any of this stuff. But they volunteer to go through the teaching program, and they emerge as effective healers. Hmm. And they they have their minds sort of <laughs> sort of messed up uh, along the way, and uh, they come out thinking that you know they really have discovered something that's fundamental about how their minds work. Uh, medicine is full of uh, training programs now to teach people how to do these things and to connect with someone uh, out there at a distance. You are no doubt familiar with the uh, nursing practice of Reiki, right? E I K I. Uh, this is a, a program usually instigated by nurses who, uh, I must say, are much more open generally to these sorts of things than doctors are. But Reiki is a, a person-to-person method of connecting with someone who is in need. If you take compassion and love and empathy out of these teaching programs, they generally don't work very well. So I, I would want to say that uh, the emotional component is really <coughs> crucial here, and this really goes beyond just being purely intellectual about things. Uh, Dennis, can I follow up? Go ahead, yeah. Um, First, I want to, uh, since you mentioned Reiki, uh, alert listeners to an interview we did with Pamela Miles that they could find in our archives about uh, Reiki. She's a Reiki master. Uh, To follow up on that question, uh, what... um, did the uh, doctor who had that uh, did that research and trained the cynical or skeptical students? What methods does he use, and to what extent 
do those emotional factors um, of wanting to heal, of empathy, of compassion, and so forth, uh, how, to what extent do they influence this, the skills involved? Well, I think uh, if you take the empathy and compassion uh, and love out of the program, uh, the results just fall flat. Uh-huh. The effect tends to go away. Uh, you know, you may wonder uh, why then did this work for these cynical students? Uh, actually, Dr. Bingston goes into uh, the reasoning behind the effectiveness and his understanding of why it works in a book called The, the Energy Cure. Uh, I wouldn't attempt uh, in this short time to detail uh, the psychological pathways, they, they're sort of elaborate, but uh, I, I think that the key thing here is to understand that these methods help people overcome a sense of separateness from what it is they're trying to, uh, to heal or, or help. And this uh, sense of unity and uh, oneness the lack of boundaries separating people is just pretty much overcome uh, in all of these methods, no matter whether we're talking about Reiki, therapeutic touch, distant healing, uh, prayer, and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think more than just an intellectual appreciation of what's going on here is this emotional, I would call it a spiritual component, mm-hmm. where but- love tends to predominate is sort of a mediating force uh, between two distant individuals. Mm-hmm. Larry, uh, I'm curious. Um, I can understand this idea of a, a conceptually a, a, a larger consciousness, a, a universal consciousness, uh, and, and, and one plugging into that to affect other people in other places because we're all part of that same consciousness. Does an understanding of this and an ability to function uh, in, in that way within that collective consciousness uh, does that give a person a greater understanding of their own mortality or a sense of immortality? And and how, if you have any ideas, on, like when a person dies, do they stay connected to that collective consciousness? And is that something that is, is, is never changing? And is that part of the immortal nature of what we call the soul or the, the deep, deepest spiritual aspects of a person? Uh, yes, I... I think that one of the uh, great benefits, possibly the greatest benefit of this uh, sense of connectedness with the the one mind idea is an overcoming of the fear of death and annihilation Mm -hmm. uh, with the death of the brain and body. Uh, If you look at people who describe an ability to connect with this greater sense of, of being, one of the things that seems to fall away is the fear of uh, physical death. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a huge database now looking at near-death experiences in people who almost die but don't quite mm-hmm. die and come back to tell about it. One of the most uh, consistent things they describe is this feeling of a sense of oneness with everything there is. Uh, this is paradoxical because along with this is a preservation of the sense of personhood uh, and individuality. So there really is a paradox here, what scientists, I think, would call a complementarity. This this feeling of individuality, yet this sense of belonging to something far, far greater than the individual self, 
seems to be at odds with each other. But uh, these two senses seem to coexist when people are in a near-death experience. But we don't have to, you know, bump up against uh, death uh, via near-death experience to experience this. I mean, the, the spiritual literature is just rich with things that are called epiphanies, where people actually have a near-death experience without actually approaching death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most uh, people who follow a spiritual path at one time or another uh, experience this. That's just the way things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's anything new at all about this revelation of one mind and a greater unitary consciousness. This really goes back uh, to ancient days. Uh, you know, the Akashic records pretty much reveal the same sort of awareness uh, 3,000 years ago. Uh, various forms of enlightenment, whether we call it Satori or Fauna or Christ consciousness, usually involve some sense of connectedness at a profound level that just fills people with this sense of joy and fulfillment. So I think what we've done, gentlemen, is to sort of put a scientific gloss on this and make it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, look dressed up and modern. But I, I think this is an ancient uh, point of view. Right. Which, which, and and what is new is the attempt to um, get uh, evidence that would comport with the rules of science and the sort of ethos of a scientific age, um, which puts you in the position of uh, bumping up against your colleagues in medicine and and science. So how has the reaction been? You've been at this now for decades. Is it different now than it was when you first uh, wrote about this? And um, how have your colleagues responded? Well, the responses basically uh, are all over the ballpark, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I must say that there's a definite uh, opening to these uh, possibilities uh, recently that I didn't perceive, you know, 30 years ago when mm-hmm. I first uh, became involved in uh, all of this. Uh, I have thousands of letters now from colleagues of mine who want to share their experiences uh, along these lines, who really have a, a, an almost a, a hunger to relate their own experiences with somebody of a like mind. Uh, I will grant you that this idea really is still on the sidelines in materialistic science, uh, but uh, if I may express optimism here, I I, I think we're going to win this so-called mm-hmm. war about uh, the nature of consciousness because we've got the data on our side. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of stalling and refusal to look at the evidence, but, you know, as the old saying goes, the cream does rise sooner or mm-hmm. later, and I... I feel confident because of the extent of this data and its depth and also because it's essential for the welfare of our our species now, I think, going forward, that this uh, idea is going to uh, so-called sweep the field. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm encouraged also because if you look at the history of 20th century science, some of the greatest scientists uh, have uh, really... Uh, endorse this idea in no uncertain terms. This comes as great comfort to me uh, to be able to point to people like (laughs) Max Planck, who is the founder of quantum physics, uh, Nobel Prize winners in physics such as Erwin Schrodinger, the great physicist David Bohm. 
Well, my colleagues uh, have ranged far and wide in terms of their acceptance of this. If I go back, uh, say, 30 years ago, almost uh, none of my colleagues were supportive of this uh, idea that consciousness can operate beyond the confines of our brain and body. Boy, has that really changed, though. Uh, I have a file drawer now of uh, letters from doctors who share their experiences with me as it's become more respectable to talk about these things. I'll just give you one example. Uh, I was recently giving a, a talk to a Harvard University sponsored uh, continuing medical education program here in Santa Fe, where I live. And uh, this was an update in internal medicine. They wanted me to talk about this idea of the one mind. So I did, and I also uh, revealed to them some precognitive dreams I've had as, in my career as a doctor, which were related to better patient care and, and so on. And uh, then in the Q&A session, they started telling me their experiences. Wow. Now, this is a Harvard group of doctors. Mm-hmm. One woman stood up and she said, well, I, I get numbers in my dreams. She said, uh, I see the specific lab test values of my patients in my dreams before I even order the tests. Hmm. And it went from there. Uh, and I, I decided that, uh, you know, there's just a hunger on the part of a lot of doctors to share these kinds of experiences and they don't open up usually because they perceive a social stigma and a professional hesitation to to be open about these things. But that's changing as new models and new science says that it's okay to talk about this sort of thing, and as the empirical data keeps coming in, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry, um, I, I, I read that uh, you um, have said that it, it's possible to develop this, these feelings of oneness, this plugging into the uh, greater consciousness through meditation, through being in nature. You gave a variety of ways, and I'm, I'm curious in your own life, uh, on a daily or weekly basis, uh, what are some of the things that you do <clears throat> to further develop uh, your intuition and your, these, these, uh, this plugging into the, the greater consciousness? Well, for one thing, uh... I think uh, informing oneself about the evidence that says this stuff is really real and we're not making it up, uh, that goes a long way for somebody like me. I mean, I'm in love with empirical science. I really do enjoy it. And for me, the fact that uh, these experiments uh, are very common now, showing something greater going on out there, uh, is uh, very encouraging. So I spend a lot of time with the literature on this. And that's supplemented with my own meditative uh, program, which I engage in on a daily basis. But there's something really, in addition to that, important for my wife and me. We live on the side of a mountain here in Santa Fe in in Opinion and Juniper Forest. And the exposure to nature has always been absolutely crucial for my experience of these dimensions we're talking about. And uh, we carry this... uh, uh, actually, into our practice. Every August for 30, 35 years, we've gone into wilderness somewhere up in the Rocky Mountain chain and just lived in a tent away from civilization uh, for two to three weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. I think exposure to great uh, beauty, whatever it is, in the natural world or in art or music or whatever, really helps someone uh, get into an appreciation of this greater dimension of consciousness. Larry, um, to get back to your uh, the reaction 
to your ideas and and your study the studies you refer to um, in the scientific community. Obviously, there will be people who would just dismiss it all as pseudoscience and not even look at the the evidence. But there may be others um, who um, object to the studies in some way or find them lacking uh, um, by way of um, scientific method. And and there may be others who would take the results and uh, fit them into a kind of materialistic uh, view of things that has to do with um, consciousness being the result of brain activity. Where does the brain fit in to the notion of one mind? And, you know, are there alternative uh, models for the relationship of, uh, for what the brain's role in all this is from the, you know, sort of mainstream uh, brain is everything model. Right. Let me deal with the first uh, part of your question first. Uh, As far as uh, people's different interpretations of the studies, you know, there's a way of getting at uh, the overall picture that's offered by studies by doing something called a systematic or a Mm meta-analysis where you combine studies and you pool the evidence and you extract data, not from one or two studies here and there, but for uh, from all the studies that apply in a given field. Mm. There have been many meta-analyses of, for example, the healing studies that I've referred to uh, that have been published in the peer-reviewed medical literature. Most of these show positive findings. So it's possible to cherry-pick and come out with studies that don't fit uh, uh, the picture I've been painting. Uh, but if you you know, do the meta-analyses, most of these studies are going to look pretty good when viewed uh, uh, in, uh, in the collective. Uh, as far as alternate models of uh, brain function that might accommodate this sort of thing, uh, one of the leading models is the brain not as a manufacturer of consciousness, it doesn't make consciousness, but uh, uh, acts as a kind of filter through which consciousness works. Uh, this is an idea, uh, um, an image, a picture that is gaining traction. It's the idea that consciousness in itself is fundamental. It isn't produced by the brain. It exists on its own, and you can't reduce it to anything more basic. Consciousness works through the brain uh, as for example, an electronic signal works through your your television set, uh, but the television set doesn't manufacture the picture that it displays. Uh, that's extraneous to the set itself. In the same way, consciousness is pictured as a fundamental. It exists on its own, but operates through the human brain. This can accommodate uh, all sorts of evidence. For example, the stuff we see on fMRI brain scans and uh, all of that sort of thing. Uh, while honoring uh, the ability of consciousness to do things that the brain simply cannot do. Uh, Larry? Again, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish, yeah. Well, I just want to say that if this sounds like a very strange idea, this idea of consciousness is fundamental has already been endorsed in the 20th century by, for example, Max Planck, who founded quantum physics, Uh, Erwin Schrodinger, another Nobel Prize winner, David Bohm, uh, some of these people I've already mentioned in our conversation. So if this idea of the brain is fund- of consciousness is fundamental sounds bizarre, 
I just have to say that it's already been endorsed by some of the giants of 20th century science. So if you if you um, see um, through um, brain imagery or something um, certain individual effects of brain activity in in a person, uh, that would be analogous to sort of changing the channel or adjusting the picture on a television. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And just to take that analogy a little bit further, uh, you can destroy the television set. You can take a sledgehammer and demolish it. That doesn't change the signal. Mm-hmm. Something exists over and beyond uh, the physical television set itself. In the same way, you can experience a stroke or have uh, various sorts of uh, uh, damages uh, to the brain, uh, physically speaking, and uh, it can just simply lose its function. Mm. But that doesn't do anything to the idea that consciousness is fundamental, that it uh, exists extraneous uh, to the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry, if you had uh, unlimited resources and could put together any type of research uh, going forward, uh, what might uh, you like to see research? <laughs> well, I wish somebody would make me that offer. <laughs> uh, I think uh, these healing studies uh, that I've talked about in terms of eradicating cancer and mice through healing uh, intentions of various mm-hmm. sorts, I think those are some of the most exciting studies going on in the world. They challenge this idea that consciousness is limited to the brain, and they show that there's a human payoff to this uh, stuff, which uh, uh, may have to do with the potential cure for some of the worst afflictions that humans endure, including cancer. Mm-hmm. So that uh, would be my uh, inclination. I would fund studies in that direction. Now, let's, let's get real practical for our listeners for, for a moment. I'm sure you're asked this all the time. For people who um, are in a situation where a loved one perhaps is ill and they want to um, influence the person's condition, if they can, and they're at a distance, or um, just n- not physicians themselves, um, what advice would you give them? Uh, are there data that show that certain conditions, like a quiet space as opposed to a noisy place, uh, a group as opposed to an individual, um, uh, any anything in particular that would enhance the opportunity for someone to affect healing? You know, this uh, has uh, been looked at in certain uh, experiments. For example, is, a, is group prayer for healing uh, better than single individual prayer? Uh, it doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, individual prayer has been shown to actually be as effective as group prayer. People have uh, tried to assess uh, strategies in healing prayer, healing thoughts. Uh, no specific form of prayer, uh, no specific religious slant on prayer has shown to have cornered the market on these healing effects. Mm. I think what we can say that, uh, so far uh, from uh, these studies is that sincerity, love, and compassion, and deep empathy is the key here. It doesn't matter whether you say thee or thou or you or hey God or whatever. Uh, it, it's the sincerity and the love that is part of it. Uh, I personally think that 
uh, it isn't necessary even to spell out the outcome that you want. There have been studies that show that when we pray an open-ended prayer, such as, may the best thing happen in this situation for this person, or may thy will be done, uh, those forms of uh, prayer are uh, uh, as effective as where people spell out the outcome Mm. they want. Mm -hmm. So I I think that over and beyond uh, religious affiliation, specific wording of prayers, it always gets back to this fundamental quality of love and compassion and Mm -hmm. empathy. So I would say uh, to people, don't stress out too much on how to do it. Uh, Just feel it in the heart and let it flow from the deepest part of where you come from. You know, we often say in, in everyday language that we pray for our loved ones. I think there's so much meaning in that simple, mm-hmm. that simple observation. We know them, we love them, we care for them deeply, and just connecting at that level with the person in need is the most important uh, uh, technique, I think, that we can invoke. Larry, uh, that's uh, great advice, and, and I, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. And again, for the people people listening in, uh, Larry's latest book, One Mind, How Our Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. Uh, any final thoughts or uh, words you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think that uh, it's important to know that the data is on your side. If you're one of these people who think that You're part of something greater, something bigger, something infinite. And also that your thoughts matter. Your love and empathy and compassion can make a difference in how the world works. And uh, I would leave it at that. Well, that's great. I would just add that if people want to know more about you and your work, the website would be larrydossymd.com, and Dossy is spelled D-O-S-S-E-Y. And um, are you working on anything new that people should be aware of? Well, I have a new book coming out. Uh, it's called What is Consciousness? Oh. It's uh, due out in uh, May or June, and uh, it's co-written with Dr. Irvin Laszlo and Gene Houston, wow. uh, who have been fellow workers uh, in this field for a, a great number of years. So what is consciousness? Keep your eye out for it. Great. And, Great. and uh, stay uh, in touch with us, Spirit Matters, at spiritmatterstalk.com. We'll have this information posted up along with uh, Larry's uh, website. And uh, uh, look for us on social media. We are on Twitter, on Facebook, here, there, and everywhere. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Dossi, thank you so very much for taking the time to speak with us today. And uh, we look forward to having you back on our show sometime. Let's do it soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Larry.